Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Christina Clark to our show. Dr. Clark is the provost at Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hi, Christina. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. So tell me about Marywood University and why students select your institution. Sure. Marywood College was founded in 1915 by the Congregation of the Sisters, Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to empower the daughters of coal miners in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Since then, Marywood has developed into a comprehensive co-ed university, and currently it's organized into three different colleges, the Insulaco Colleges of Arts and Sciences, the College of Health and Human Services, and the REAP College of Professional Studies. So uh, given that background, uh, it will come as no surprise that a Marywood education is rooted in the Catholic intellectual tradition, the principle of justice, and our belief that education empowers people. We integrate the liberal arts and professional programs to create a comprehensive learning experience for our students. Our academic programs promote excellence, they advance innovative scholarship, and we have a big focus on fostering leadership in service to others. We overall challenge people from all different backgrounds. We started out serving the daughters of coal miners uh, who were kept out of the educational system at that time, but we challenge everyone of all backgrounds to achieve their full potential and make choices based on spiritual and ethical values. Now, um, an important part of our mission it always has been from the very start, but we've reworded uh, our mission for the modern times. An important part of this mission is to prepare students to seek sustainable solutions for the common good. And we educate them to be global citizens living responsibly in an interdependent world. And that was something that we really emphasized during the COVID-19 pandemic when we strongly encouraged people to get vaccinated as part of living responsibly in an interdependent world. So students choose Marywood for our, obviously our excellent academic programs, but also our beautiful campus and our welcoming and close-knit community. They often tell us, um, and they tell students at orientation events and on tours, but you always hear that Marywood feels like home and family to them, even as they talk about it as a life-changing place. And I think a large part of the life-changing um, feeling for them is our faculty. Our faculty are very caring teacher scholars that give our students a lot of personal attention and support. Uh, for example, um, coming out of the pandemic, one of our students through the student government asked faculty if they would add mental health days as a type of excused absence. And the faculty you know, considered that. And I was happy to hear um, from one of the student government reps that they're seeing on their syllabi that mental health days have been added. As wow, that's great. Yeah. Well, what's new at the university? Programs or, or services, things like that? Well, we have a lot that's new. Um, our strategic plan is relatively new. And its first goal 
to create a culture focused on addressing critical real-world systemic problems through interdisciplinary, interprofessional, and intergenerational initiatives has led us to develop some new programs. There are two new undergraduate programs that are interdisciplinary, environmental studies, which has three tracks, environmental justice, environmental humanities, and environmental science. And these prepare students for careers in nonprofit policy and advocacy work, sustainability, to work as a environmental project managers, to name just a few of the many possibilities in the, the green economy. We're also rolling out a construction management major. We have a renowned school of architecture um, with a variety of programs around the built environment. And so we're rolling out a new one, construction management, with an integrative curriculum emphasizing a design build approach sustainable construction and problem solving skills. So this will be the only four year program of its type in Northeastern Pennsylvania, and we're looking to meet regional needs. And finally, there's our distinctive new liberal arts core curriculum rolling out in fall 23 that I'm very excited about. It's distinctive because it's integrative rather than distributive emphasizing knowledge acquisition, reflection, and synthesis so that the students can practice applying their learning to new circumstances. So they'll develop mm -hmm. the, the essential habits for learning beyond the usual disciplinary boundaries. And from the very start in their first course, uh, they will collect and eat portfolios, their assignments, projects, uh, reflections on coursework and experiences that showcase evidence of their learning so I'd, I'd like to highlight just a few aspects of this new core. In their first and second years, students take our four archway courses that focus on metacognition and metacognitive practices. So students are going to be led by faculty and through assignments to uh, think about their thinking and develop an awareness of their strengths and weaknesses as, as learners, test takers, writers. Um, and so they will apply that self-knowledge to all the rest of their, their coursework and, uh, and to their work going forward. I love that um, after that first and second year, they then go on to choose courses within what we're calling pathways. They are beauty, environment, and cultures, body, mind, and soul, human nature, technology, and design, and social responsibility, dialogue, and justice. So students can actually if they choose to follow a certain pathway all the way through, they will come out with a minor in that. So they're they're choosing the path that they want to take through the core. And then finally, in their second semester, junior or senior year, they will take a capstone in which they combine their sustained reflection on their coursework and their future goals outside of college in a culminating project. So I think that this is I'm so excited about this because I think it will prepare our students so well for careers in life in our time of rapid societal and technological change. Yeah, that's a, that's really a good point. I, I totally agree. Um, well, let's change our topic here for a minute and talk about you. So tell me about yourself and the path that led you to become the provost at Marywood. Well, it was a winding path. Um, <laughs> I think it was set... Early on in childhood, I was brought up in a military family. My dad was an army officer and my mom an elementary school teacher. They're both first-generation college students, and they brought my sisters and I up 
me, my sisters and me up um, with a focus on the importance of ethics, service, education, and social justice. So just a funny story. My dad every morning would wake us up uh, by whistling Reveille and exclaiming <laughs> another day in which to excel. And then my mom would come in after him and say, just try your best. <laughs> so <laughs> that is great. Um, they set expectations, you know, in that way. And then on army bases and compounds, I lived in a I really benefited from living in a diverse environment. I had black, Hispanic, and Asian friends always. And when we were stationed in the Philippines in the final years of the Vietnam War, I was eight years old, nine years old. I learned that the American way is just one way among many, and that English is just one language among thousands. So that really shaped um, the whole course of my life. And I didn't grow up wanting to be an academic or an administrator. I know you'll be surprised by that. Um, I first intended to be a ballet dancer, and I oh. uh, trained in that uh, at an elite level. But when push came to shove in the end, I decided to go to college. And luckily, my dad was on the faculty of Georgetown at that time. And um, so I enrolled there. I was fortunate to get in. And uh, I was in the same class, by the way, as Patrick Ewing, in case oh, you're a basketball geez. fan. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know him, unfortunately. He was an art major. But um, it was uh, an interesting time at Georgetown. And um, so I, I tried through the liberal arts corps a bunch of different majors on and then ultimately fell in love with classics and, and uh, majored in that. And I didn't there was no career center or focus on helping students find what they want to do at that point. So. After graduation, I just worked in business for a few years um, in a finance company where my manager really valued the soft skills that I had developed as a classics major. And he said, I can't teach you those. We can teach you the finance stuff. And they sent me for courses and paid for them to become a credit analyst and all of that. So that really was my first experience with the workplace value of a liberal arts education. So that was powerful. I did, after a couple of years in finance, go to grad school, decide to become an academic, became a professor of classics. And then in the course of taking my turn at being chair um, of my department, classical and Near Eastern studies, I discovered I had a talent and skills in, in being an administrator. And so I, and I had seen a lot of not so good administrators um, in my opinion as a faculty member. So I thought I could really serve you know, as a faculty member, I love teaching and serving my students um, and doing what I could in that context. But as an administrator, you can really help more people. Um, you can help institutions thrive. And so I felt a calling to do that. And so I moved from Creighton to Marymount University in the DC area as a dean. And then now I'm provost here at Marywood. How long have you been the provost? Two years. I started in July 2020 in the height of the pandemic shutdown. Boy, you know, um, I was just talking to a, a young lady uh, last week and we were talking about provost. And that just seems, both deans, such a hard job because as a chair, you get to fight for your for your department. As a dean, you get to fight for your college. But as a provost, everybody wants a piece of you. Uh, so how's that transition been? I mean, two years still is 
is relatively new. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um you know, you as you go up the ladder in administration, you know, even as dean, you've got to see um both the needs of your college, but also the institutional needs. So you get that training in, the, in both those perspectives. And then when you're provost, you have to be uh, the person prioritizing the institution as a whole. Um, you are the one who is the voice of academics on campus in the cabinet overall, um, but you also really do have to work closely with your cabinet colleagues on um, you know, serious issues that affect the long-term health of the university. So it means that you, you don't have the fun stuff of being a dean. That's right. <laughs> um, that direct interaction with faculty and students. And I do miss that very much. But you also have a greater chance to uh, be involved in those momentous decisions. Yeah. So it was it was hard because campus was shut down. No, you know, very few people are on campus. I was on campus with like the president and um, a couple of others, but I had to get to know everyone over Zoom. You know, in order to build trust, you have to meet mm. people, get to know them, sure. attend things. And so it was um, it was hard. Yeah, sure. I, I get that. Yeah, I think it's hard to step into a provost position when everything's perfect. So I like just, just realized, gosh, during the pandemic, that must have been a, a tough road to, to go down. Uh, what's been the proudest moments for you as provost? Well, um, picking up on what we were just talking about, I think the way that the university community navigated through the pandemic so well, it was we were all back to we were doing something no one had ever done before, although, of course, pandemic as a classicist, I'm aware of the thousands of years of pandemics that, you know, have happened to various cultures over time. But we ourselves have never experienced it. So working together, um, it was a, a creative time as well as a very stressful time. So I'm, I'm really proud of how the community came together and uh, navigated that tricky landscape of trying to preserve the health and safety of our of our community as well as remaining uh open and uh fulfilling our mission so that was a very proud moment me for me personally um i'm proud of the fact that we've made progress in increasing the diversity of our faculty and staff in our new hires over the past couple of years and that we um, rolled out last May an excellent diversity, equity, and inclusion non-credit certificate program. Um, Northeastern Pennsylvania, you know, obviously is not as diverse an area as the Washington, D.C. area, but it is growing um, in its diversity. And so I think we're meeting a need uh, with that certificate, too. Um, another thing I'm really proud of is our development of global education. When I first came, um, the I met with the vice president for enrollment management, who suggested that our international education had pretty much, uh, well, there was not a lot going on in it at the time, of course, COVID and everything else. And so she suggested that we move it into academic affairs. So I was happy to do that. And we created a, 
an associate provost for global education position and hired someone who's been amazing. So over the past year, we've developed a number of new partnership initiatives, such as an agreement to offer our MBA online in China with the option for qualified students to come and do their second year on campus here. Uh, we have over 252 students enrolled in that now. Oh, and exciting. we've established over 15 MOUs with global partners focusing on nursing, education, business, and architecture. But a real jewel in our crown right now is that the South Korean Ministry of Education designated Marywood as one of only 13 overseas practical training institutes, one of only two in the United States. Um, and wow. we were delighted to welcome 39 South Korean students to our community this fall through that global practical experience program. So we are really uh, doing a lot in global education these days. Yeah, congratulations. That's 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 excellent. Um, well, when we look at your background as both a provost and a dean and, and as a chair, what's been some of the lessons you've learned in, in those positions? Yeah, I think that one thing that I have learned is that you must address conflict. You must address problems because if they're kicked down the road, they become monstrous and they affect students and they affect the department culture as a whole. So I have spent um, a lot of time over the past six years um, becoming familiar with long-term conflict and problems in departments and addressing it and making sure that uh, those problems are fixed. And a lot of people don't want to deal with conflict. I don't like to deal with conflict. It's not pleasant. No one, you know, I don't know. Some people might enjoy it, but it, it is a hard thing to do when you have to learn the skills of managing conflict and um, using the university's processes and policies to resolve it so that the departments and individuals can thrive. So don't, don't let things grow and become those types of um, really horrendous problems. And I think um, another thing I've learned is that that cliche that you often hear that the provost has the hardest job on campus and, you know, <laughs> I think that probably is true because, um, you know, the buck stops with you and things do get kicked up. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I, I've, Dean was as high as I wanted to go. And I, I had a dear friend that became a provost last year and I just saw the weight of the world fall in his shoulders just like that. So, so God bless you guys for for taking those positions. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for uh, for somebody who is just starting out as a provost? Well, I think that, um, gosh, right now with every all the serious challenges we're all grappling with, or most of us in higher ed are grappling with, new provosts really have to hit the ground running. Um, but despite that, you've got to take a lot of time to get to know people. You have to um, have individual meetings, um, take people to lunch and coffees, attend parts of department meetings, um, attend a variety of events so that you can get to know people, build trust, make those connections, um, learn the history of things from multiple perspectives because people are going to want to tell you 
how things really are. And um, so you're, you will be pressed to act because of the, you know, complex issues we're all grappling with, but you can't really act effectively unless you have built that foundation um, of trust with people. And, you know, those starting now have the pleasure of doing that in person when, whereas I had to do it by zoom. So um, it's, it is a necessary thing uh, for shared governance to work effectively. You've got to have built those relationships with people. Mm. Well, what do you think are the major challenges that universities are going to face over the next five to 10 years? Well, I know that's a crystal ball call. So, <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think we're going to be challenged. We're going to be dealing with the same stuff we're dealing with now, the, the rapid societal and technological changes that are a feature of our life here in the fourth industrial revolution um, that I never thought I was going to, you know, I never imagined that I would be living in such a significant historical epic like that. Um, So we'll be reckoning with systemic racism and its results, the economic inequality, the wealth disparity that has just skyrocketed since the 1980s. Um, the political divisions and extremism that are limiting our ability to be effective citizens and education is, you know, so important for helping people form into effective citizens. So in higher ed, you know, let's narrow it down. Uh, The traditional tuition-based financial model of higher ed is uh, going to have to change. We need to diversify our revenues and we have to address affordability and accessibility. The increasing, you know, we lost control of the narrative. We, or we didn't even participate in creating the narrative of the value of higher ed. So Mm. dealing with the skepticism around the value of college education, the changing demographics, um, I think making the necessary changes to our systems as part of the reckoning with racism and meeting the needs of students with flexible learning options, different types of degrees, um, meeting them where they are and giving them the types of things that they want. Um, I mean, we're not going to become Amazon and um, I'm, I'm not for that. I don't think we should uh, just disaggregate to that level, but we need to be much more responsive to uh, what students want and need. And then the national mental health crisis is not going to go away anytime soon. And that's stressing all, you know, all aspects of life, including colleges and universities, and then attracting and retaining faculty and staff after this period of pandemic reflection when people are deciding they want different things out of the workplace, the effects of climate change on campuses, depending on where you are, and many more. So I think that's a huge laundry list of of things we'll be dealing with over the past or the next five to 10 years. But the good thing is that we're already at work on those things. So we just have to stay the course. Yeah, that that is a really good list. So I think you really summed it up well. Um, (laughs) You know, you made a comment about the the value of higher ed, which kind of throws me off too, because I just don't understand all of a sudden where that turn is, because universities just don't educate people to be proficient in a job, but they make them well-rounded citizens. It's the 
you know, some people like to talk about soft skills, but, you know, if you yeah. think about how they critically think and uh, look at one problem and figure out how to do that and then use that information to engage in other problems, I, it's, it's, I don't know how you, how you tackle that. Do you, do you have any suggestions of how people can counter that, that conversation? Well, it's, it's really complex. I think that uh, we live in an age where economics is, that's what people value. They value money. Um, and I'm always very, I mean, money is very important. Let's, you know, we have to have money for, for good lives to be healthy and to flourish. Um, but I think it, it goes back to, I don't know, all the way to in families and in K-12. I mean, what is a meaningful life? What do you want? You have a short time on this earth, no matter how long you live, it's comparatively short. What is valuable? Um, is it just to make as much money as you possibly can? Is that the value? Um, or is it to contribute to society? Is it to be a good citizen? I mean, being raised in a military family, being a good citizen was incredibly important. Um, I, I always vote. Um, that's my civic duty. I think we need to raise people with an awareness of, and as I've tried to do with my own daughter, um, you do want to have a well-rounded life. Um, you want to learn new things. You want to be able to um, think for yourself and make a positive contribution. And, um, you know, other countries don't have this strong focus on your value is how much money you make. Um, I've lived in Italy for um, a couple of years and they prioritize daily life, time with family, time with friends. Um, and I think we've, we need to get back to that as well. I mean, we're always talking about work-life balance and how Americans live to work and other people work to live. Right. And I, I really focus on that with faculty and staff. I say, you, you need to mind your own work-life balance. I can't do it for you. I encourage you to look at what you're doing. Do you need to do all of those different things? Can you turn down a service opportunity? Don't send emails after a certain time at night. You know, you set limits because only you know how you feel. So it's it, I'm, it's not a direct answer to your question, which I think is a, a complex but important one. Um, it all goes back to your values. And no, I, I think that, um, for example, at a high school in Northern Virginia, um, which is an area that is very wealthy and the schools are very well funded, but when I was touring there, I said, well, what do you do for the students who don't want to go to college? They don't do anything for students who don't right. want to college. I mean, there should be, what do you enjoy? Do you like working with your hands? Well, here are careers, vocational careers, and that's just as valuable as doing this other thing. Right. Um, so I think in, you know, in K-12, um, well, it's, it's very disparate because we fund based on property taxes. So that's another problem. But I think students aren't getting that sense of there's a wide range of really good things you can do with your life. Um, and here are different ways you can achieve that through VOTEC, Bo through college degrees, um, different combinations. 
and they're all worthwhile and all contributing and your own happiness is important as well. Um, so it's, it's not an easy fix, but I think we've really, uh, we need to pull back and really examine um, what's important. And I think our own, our political scene now with such strong divisions and misinformation and the lack of critical thinking being applied um, to data sources, it's, uh, it's a huge problem and it's gonna take a long time to address. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, you have individuals just worry about winning instead of what's right or wrong. Yeah. And uh, and the second, the, the other comment that you made, I I agree with too. Is you know we're gonna have a we're gonna have a group of individuals who's gonna um, well for an example, I, I when I put on my old department chair hat from years and years ago, I remember there was a a, a police chief that wanted us to develop a, an associate degree for for his for his officers. Yeah. So as I'm looking at all this stuff, he he finally said, Dave, I can teach people how to drive. Uh, you know, a squad car and shoot a gun. I need them to be able to think and talk to people and write. And I went, yes. so you're talking about in, in, in the two-year world, those soft skills, those general ed school, he goes, yes, that's what we need. And I, and I think that's where we're going to eventually get back to people's going to realize whatever we're trying to develop is strictly some very specific skills, but that doesn't make you an outstanding citizen. And it really doesn't help you a hundred percent in the job that you're going to do. Yeah. Because you need you need those human skills, right? Human to skills. I like other humans. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. that's a good term. I like that. I, I've never liked soft skills. I've always tried to figure out a better word. But yes, human skills are, is, yeah. is an excellent phrase. Um, yeah. Well, what do you think's been learned about online education since the pandemic, and how do you see this platform evolving for both faculty and students? Well, I think that the incredibly quick pivot to online learning uh, necessitated by the pandemic is, is proof that higher ed can change rapidly if it needs to. But because of that extraordinarily quick pivot, many classes were just face-to-face -face classes taught synchronously via Zoom as everyone was just trying to complete the spring 2020 semester as best we could. So there was no time to think carefully through course design which is vital. Online pedagogy is different than face-to-face -face pedagogy. Um, every discipline and faculty member uh, needs to evaluate what types of online learning work best for them and the courses that they teach, what learning outcomes um, are involved. Our surveys during the pandemic years showed that our undergraduate students really preferred most of all having face-to-face -face classes. They wanted to build those relationships with their faculty and their students. Um, they did like to have the opportunities for some hybrid and online courses, but well, as we say in uh, Catholic education, undergraduate education is formative, it's formation. And so um, I think prioritizing face-to-face -face classes um, makes sense for that, for the students who are able to um, take classes in that modality. Graduate students are, you know, tend to be happy with online programs because they value flexibility and convenience because they're working full time. They may have families and responsibilities there. So I think that higher ed overall needs to do a better job of meeting students where they are and offering a variety of programs that meet their needs in modalities they prefer. So I think that um, it really is an individual choice. Um, 
in terms of online education and um, how it will evolve. It's really hard to say because that is technology is evolving so rapidly. Um, I think faculty have used learned to use very quickly a lot of the um, I don't remember the names of them, but online ways of engaging students that they have kept using in face-to-face classes too. So I think that as um, course design develops and these new apps uh, that are constantly being developed that are good for different types of um, purposes, I think they'll always be used. Um, But I couldn't possibly tell you how the platform's gonna evolve because that's, um, well, not my expertise, but it's been evolving so rapidly. Well, you know, non-traditional students sometimes struggle more at colleges and universities. Do you have any suggestions on how um, we can serve this specific student population better? Yes. Um, I think it's it's pretty simple. We need to review our systems and our processes and identify barriers to them. You know, for example, what fees do we really need to charge them? Um can we have a one-stop shop? I know that people argue back and forth for in terms of student services, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, but making it convenient and easy for them, having staff to, um, you know, they talk about concierge service, but really that is just working individually with students um, to address their own barriers that they experience that may have led them to drop out, stop out of um, college or not go to college to begin with, um, to make them feel Um, a sense of belonging from the very start, that is all important. Um, So we need to teach transparently and inclusively. That's not hard to do. We need to use multiple modalities for their convenience um, and what works for them in their schedules, provide online and after hours student support. I mean, if your student support services close at five and they work full time, that's a barrier. Think about what other needs they might have, um, childcare, um, food and housing insecurity. So I don't, I think that it's, people haven't focused on making these changes. I mean, some institutions have really focused on this type of thing and they've done a great job at um, serving non-traditional adults, uh, students, but others are just starting because of the demographic shifts, realizing that this is a demographic that they really do need to to serve and enroll. Yeah, I would say that when I use the word non-traditional, some people go, that's turning into traditional. <laughs> In other words, yeah. they're starting to see that that change of their student population go more exactly. toward a little bit older adults or working adults or moms with kids that need child care. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it really has changed over the years. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of universities are now focusing their attention on the mental health of students. What do you think campuses can do to tackle this problem? Oh, that's, that is a, an urgent uh, question. I think that the way to do it is to focus on overall well-being, that in fact, some universities are even creating centers for well-being to show that mental health is just as important as physical health and it affects physical health. Campus counseling centers are meant for short-term care, and you refer students outside to outside providers for long-term care and long-term issues. Because of 
there was a mental health crisis even before the pandemic and the pandemic just exacerbated it. Um, mental health practitioners are stressed with greatly increased workloads. Um, it's hard to hire directors of campus counseling centers. We're we're trying to do that now. Many campuses are turning to, to add telehealth options as a supplement to their campus centers. And I think that's a great idea, although it's of course costly, um, but it's a great idea because it gives students additional options like choosing counselors who align with their identities and um, getting care outside of the nine to five workday, which is crucial uh, for this population. So I do think a, a focus on holistic well-being is important to um, just to, to correctly focus on it. Um, you know, uh, Gen X or Gen Z, sorry, Gen Z, there's no stigma around mental health for Gen Z. Uh, it's the older generations that that have that. Um, but I think that the campus is comprised of all those different generations. So you want to destigmatize any, you know, anything, any negative perceptions of mental health. So that holistic well-being focus is important. And in terms of faculty and staff, these well-being centers can offer programs for them as well. And I think that um, this is this is urgent. You know, the Surgeon General has declared a national mental health crisis, and you know, from K twelve up, it is something that uh, significant resources have to be devoted to. Well, here's a fun question: If you had any extra budget money right now, and you just pick the the amount with no strings attached, how would you spend it? Oh gosh, the options, are <laughs> many options, but near and dear to my heart, what I would do is I would fund student scholarships for studying abroad. It's such a transformational experience and, and many can't afford the extra expense. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Yes, two that I read last year and just really, really loved and found valuable. One is by Marjorie Haas, A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Education, um, and King and Mitchell's Leadership Matters, Confronting the Hard Choices Facing Higher Ed, Education, and both of those are published by Johns Hopkins. Oh, great. Well, thank you for those suggestions. Well, Christina, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Dave. I enjoyed it too. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.